This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Technology isn't autonomous. It's not something that falls out of the sky. It is the product of our society. So it reflects our own desires and our biases. So if we think about some of the problems around facial recognition um, for people of color, for example, like this is a reflection of society. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. The 2021 Future Strategy Forum focused on the nexus between national security and technology. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast features a panel discussion from the forum on how emerging technologies are shaping interstate interactions that stop short of kinetic action, from statecraft and diplomacy to information operations. The moderator is Suzanne Spaulding, Senior Advisor, Homeland Security in the CSIS International Security Program and Director of the Defending Democratic Institutions Project. The Future Strategy Forum is presented by CSIS, the Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins SICE, and Bridging the Gap. Today we've got a great group assembled to talk about statecraft and emerging technologies below the level of kinetic action, outside the context of war fighting, but challenges and opportunities nevertheless. And we've got a great group assembled today. I'm going to introduce them. We've got Jenny Badanis from Microsoft, who is the Director of Strategic Projects for Microsoft's Defending Democracy Program. Jenny uh, and I have worked together on uh, projects uh, up at Harvard, for example, on uh, defending democratic digital democracy around elections. She's focused on countering the growth of th the threat of nation state attacks against vulnerable democratic institutions globally, all over the world. Ginny has over 15 years of experience at the intersection of politics and technology. She's been recognized as one of campaign and elections rising stars. She's also received the American Association of Political Consultants 40 Under 40 Award. Really thrilled that Ginny could be with us. Christy Lawrence, is here. She's the Director for Research and Analysis at the National Commission on Artificial Intelligence. She's working there on international artificial intelligence cooperation, international AI R&D, international technical standards, and intellectual property. Previous to that, she worked at Harvard's Belfer Center's Cyber Project, where she co-authored The Case for Increased Transatlantic Cooperation on Artificial Intelligence. She's previously worked at the State Department and as a management consultant, and she is a concurrent MPP and JD candidate at the Harvard Kennedy School and Stanford Law School. Busy woman. Camille Stewart, my former colleague at the Department of Homeland Security. She is currently a Harvard Belfer Center Cyber Fellow. We've rated their excellent ranks for today's panel. She's a New America Political Reform Fellow and Atlantic Council a DFR Lab Fellow. She is currently serving as Global Head of Product Security Strategy at Google. She previously led the security and privacy policy for Google's Android and Google's Play divisions. 
And as I referenced uh, at the outset, she served as a senior policy advisor for cyber, infrastructure, and resilience policy at DHS uh, in the Obama administration, where she focused on a number of domestic and international cyber and tech policy issues. She's also held leadership roles at Deloitte and Cyvalence Inc., which is now Zero Fox. Great to have you with us, Camille. Last but not least is Sana Vershuren. Sana is a PhD candidate in political science at Brown University and a pre-doctoral fellow with Harvard Belfer Center's International Security Program. Her research interests include the development of military technology, shifts in military strategy and tactics, and the role of ideas and norms therein. Her dissertation examines why and how states decide to procure different weapons capabilities within similar military domains. Sana's research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the Horowitz Foundation for Social Policy, and the Belgian American Education Foundation, among others. Prior to graduate school, she interned with the UN Office of Disarmament Affairs, the Flemish Peace Institute, and the Center for International Politics of Conflict, Rights, and Justice. So I think you will agree that we've got a terrific team assembled here. And I'm going to start out by asking each of you to just give us a couple of thoughts on what you think might be some of the most significant challenges and opportunities for statecraft, for nation states, for governments, as they think about their role in the context of emerging technologies. So, Jenny, I'm going to start with you. Look, this is such a big question, and we could we could take it a lot of different directions. The first thing I thought of when I was trying to consider what a big challenge it is when you're talking about emerging technology and, and governance is essentially when something is emerging, it means essentially it's new. And when it's new, it's probably going to be hard to understand. And so while it's a, a sort of a maybe an obvious point to make, the biggest challenge I think tends to come from getting that understanding to people in positions of power within governments in order to make informed decisions. And a lot of times you want to make those decisions early, um, but that's the biggest challenge is the information's not there, the understanding is not there. And how do you make something that is emerging, not yet an emergency, feel uh, important enough to pay attention to early on? So one example would be post-quantum um, cryptography. Right? I mean, this is a thing that we have known about for a while. At least as far back as 2015, there have been reports saying, you know, by 2030, I think is the latest I've seen, we're going to have our entire... Um, encryption ecosystem uh, blown up by quantum computing. And like that's, you know, there's good news and bad news to that. Uh, the good news is we have time, you know, that's pretty far away. There's time to establish some standards and to have conversations with, with people in, in positions of power. The, the bad thing is there's time, there's maybe too much time. Um, and so in order to make this feel like something that is actually an emergency that we need to be focused on and that we need to collaborate with other stakeholders, that's going to be a huge challenge. There's been, on that particular issue, a lot of progress, um, but other emerging technologies are going to face similar problems. You just have to get that knowledge to the right people. Great. Camille? Excellent framing, Jenny. I think it's really important to emphasize how important it will be for governments and stakeholders to think about how they meet the moment on these challenges. I mean, AI and machine learning and how those scale attacks as well as are able to scale response is another great example. How are we going to meet adversaries as they leverage these capabilities in a way that is much more agile than governments are able to do, but even worse if they are not getting ahead of this capability? 
Um, another opportunity is confidential computing. If governments are able to adopt that early, they can secure information during processing, not just during transit or at rest. Um, so there are a lot of opportunities on the horizon as well as challenges that if governments, if stakeholders take this moment to get ahead, to educate themselves and to collaborate with industry as they are developing these things, we can meet that moment. Christy, I know you your work on the AI Commission, on the Artificial Intelligence Commission, um, has really gone a long way to help educate policymakers, as Ginny and Camille have talked about. But also, importantly, at least perhaps equally important, is to educate the public, right? Which is which is uh, one of the principal sources of motivation, certainly for policymakers in Congress to take action, as if they think their constituents care. Um, what do you see as some of the most significant challenges and, and opportunities? Thank you so much. And, and um, for background on the commission, it was created by Congress in, in 2018 to really advance artificial intelligence, machine learning, and associated technologies to uh, protect the United States national security and defense. And so, I mean, following up on excellent comments from, um, from the other panelists in that artificial intelligence really does and has led to new arenas for global competition. And the reality is we're facing a uh, strategic competitors that have identified artificial intelligence and another, other emerging technologies as critical tools for them to leapfrog American leadership. So we're seeing uh, political arenas and, and policy tools like intellectual property, international technical standards. We're seeing those become tools to weaponize and advance a governance model that export authoritarianism and, and really is attempting to show an alternative to democracy and innovation that's really important for both America and, and our allies and partners. And so this proposes a lot of challenges for the United States and our allies and partners because we need to reorganize and come from a position of strength and unity. Um, the State Department needs to be re reorganized to address competitive diplomacy in a digital era. Uh, we need to propose new mechanisms and emerging technology coalition to align with our allies and partners and, and not erect artificial impediments to international collaboration, but, but really reorient for the strategic competition. Great. And, and it's not only important that we form a unified front and mobilize with our partners, but that we're able to do so at home to mobilize our own public. Uh, which is increasingly a challenge to get folks to agree and reach consensus around a movement forward, which is one of the reasons that um, our project Defending Democratic Institutions has been talking about the renewal of civics education as a national security imperative. Sana, you have really been you know, taking a, a national security defense kind of focus on some of these issues. And from that perspective, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges and, and opportunities here. Okay, fantastic. Um, thank you very much for having me today. It's such a pleasure to be on such a fantastic panel. Um, so I wanna make two big points. Um, so the first one is that technology isn't autonomous. It's not something that falls out of the sky. It is the product of our society. So it reflects our own desires and our biases. So if we think about some of the problems around um, facial recognition um, for people of color, for example, like this is a reflection of, of the way our society um, is, is structured. And um, same if we think about drones, drones, for example, um, drones um, weren't 
didn't create targeted killing, but rather they enabled a particular version of targeted killing that emerged after 9-11 um, in, in, the, in the framework of a particular foreign policy. And then the second point I'd like to make is that technology is already here. It's important to look at the future, but in our future gaze, we don't want to not recognize what's already here. So technological development is incremental and like things like AI um, have been around, attempts at thinking machines and all these kinds of things have been around for a very, very long time. Um, and some of these technologies are already here. Automate target recognition, defensive systems that operate automated in um, a context of having um, a sh too short of a time for um, human involvement, loitering, etc. And in addition, the way we should think about these, some of these tools are systems in and of itself, but others are um, applications and tools that will enhance existing capabilities and systems. So these are like kind of the uh, points I'd like to make. Thank you. Yeah, terrific. I think and particularly your last point about, you know, making sure that we focus not just on that underlying technology, but on the applications of that technology. And what are the implications of that, of those applications? Um, uh, Beverly Kirk, who really sort of is the, the uh, honchoing this whole future strategy forum, uh, tweeted one of her favorite comments from yesterday's conversation was, uh, it's not just about the tech, it's about what you do with it, right? It is. So we're, we're very concerned now about the build out of 5G, but are we thinking enough about what are the applications of that that we need to be worrying about? Um, same with quantum and AI, right? It's There's, a, there's one ash, aspect that is a competitive aspect of just the underlying technology, but then there's also both the competitive and the societal impact of those applications. So, so uh, Camille, one of the things, uh, you know, Ginny talked about um, the, you know, how do we get priority on something that is just emerging? It's hard enough to get uh, focused policymaker attention when the house is burning down. You and I know this from cybersecurity, as does Ginny and others on this uh, panel. Is it partly the way we're organized? as a government, you, you served at DHS, you know, based on that kind of experience, what do you think? What, what would be the most important kind of things we should do differently, at, at least in terms of organization, uh, to be able to be, to show greater alacrity in addressing these emerging challenges and opportunities? Yeah, I think the question is really twofold. Are we organized correctly and are we resourced correctly? And for the first one, we have an opportunity in this moment with the National Cyber Director being a formalized position and someone getting ready to be installed. Let's hope that that happens. Um, and building out that office and how that fits in the broader picture. There is a focus on implementation from that office, but there's also a lot of opportunity for what powers are bestowed upon the National Cyber Director versus the National Security Council versus the head of CISA. Um, another role that needs to have the nominee installed, right? So we get those leaders in place and figure out exactly who owns what, how, and how we can operate accordingly, codify that in a new version of PPD 41 so that we can reorganize appropriately. Um, I think we have the bones, but there are some needs that we've seen emerge in some of the recent attacks. Um, but folks like Alex Stamos have talked about if we have some kind of national transportation and safety type board. I mean, that functionality should live in CISA. So how do we build that and resource that appropriately? Um, how do we make sure that the implementation work that the National Cyber Director is doing supports the operational work that's happening in CISA and allows them to focus therein? 
how do we make sure that the linkages that they are seeking to create with the uh, in, with industry facilitate feeding that kind of information sharing and collaboration that CISA is supposed to be driving from an operational perspective? And then how are they both working with the National Security Council to create cyber policies and strategies that span the interagency or are leveraging the best of what each agency has to bear to drive towards the president's priorities? So I think we're in a unique moment where there are some tweaks that can be made to how the interagency functions and how each of the key players function such that we could be primed and ready to meet this moment. And then of course, there's a lot of resourcing that needs to happen. We need to update Einstein. We need to um, be able to be more agile in our procurement such that we can facilitate meeting how technology is evolving. We talked a lot about um, being ready and being aware of these challenges, but if they're not resourced, you can be as ready as you'd like to be, but we can't meet the moment. So funding will be a really big piece of this and creating new structures, new funding apparatuses, um, and new opportunities for the government to be a bit more agile. Yeah, um, Ginny, Camille referenced uh, a couple times there the relationship with the private sector. Um, it does seem to me that one of the interesting challenges, and you all have touched on this, of, of emerging technologies and statecraft is the changing relationship between the government and private sector. We'll talk in, in a bit about the changing relationship between the government and the governed, which includes the private sector. But specifically, you know, I just think it's so interesting when you look, for example, at the kinds of the role that Microsoft has played in taking down botnets, uh, you, you know, using our courts, for example. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how we should be thinking about that government relationship with the private sector, particularly in this context of trying to be, to show greater alacrity to get out ahead of uh, the challenges from emerging technologies and take full opportunity, take full advantage of the opportunities. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the question uh, almost has the answer built into it, which is essentially noting that technology companies and other companies, other private sector entities, are key stakeholders in all of these conversations. And I think what is um, really positive is that we have seen both on the international global level as well as within the U.S. and in, um, interagency interactions that that's been acknowledged. I think uh, the, the way that diplomacy used to be done, for example, just between nation states um, and you know the private sector sort of was woven in later, especially when you're dealing with issues of emerging technologies or something that is directly relevant to the technology sector, you're seeing those companies and those individuals being brought in at an earlier stage, contributing to the conversation. Um, and I, I think that, that is a very positive thing in the, in the right step forward, um, acknowledging that there are times, of course, for for countries to deal directly in diplomacy, but there's also a role for technology companies to play. So, I mean, your question really, again, sort of is the answer, which is we need to look at who are stakeholders in this process and bringing them in earlier, having them at the table as full participants. That way they also have uh, some responsibility um, in the decisions that are being made. They have skin in the game. Um, when you're part of the solution that's being drafted, it's a lot harder to argue um, with what has been put in front of you, right? Um, and that you're just responding to. So I've seen a lot of, we've all seen a lot of great move uh, moves in the right direction on that um, within the US around cybersecurity, which is, as you've noted, an area that we've seen a lot of advances lately. Um, that's really been very key. The Biden administration has done a great job of reaching out to technology companies, bringing them in and making sure that they're a part of the solution as we're dealing with the ramp up of these cyber attacks. Um, and again, that's a, that's a positive thing. And we just frankly need more of that. Well, Chrissy, one of the areas um, that I know we we need to focus on, in addition to that broader diplomatic 
context where the private sector has not traditionally been, been brought in uh, early, but as Jenny says, we're doing better, um, is the standards process, which can be so critically important and I think has been undervalued um, and, and under-resourced and certainly understaffed uh, for quite some time. You wanna speak a bit to that point? Yeah, thank you so much for that wonderful question. And, and we at uh, the commission completely agree and, and, and think that international standards is an area where the United States government really needs to uh, improve its approach to how it engages at international technical standard setting bodies, um, particularly to ensure that these technical standard setting bodies uh, are maintain their neutrality, maintain their integrity, um, become avenues for the United States and, and other like-minded allies and partners and the private sector to ensure that the that artificial intelligence and digital technologies are developed in, in ways that are secure, resilient, reliable, and trustworthy. Um, and so to address that, the commission does have a suite of recommendations that really starts at the top with leadership. So we recommend that the White House should have a technology competitiveness council that would look uh, that would develop a national technology strategy and really address some of the points that uh, both of the other panelists have already brought up. It's important to have a strategy. It's important to have leadership at the top. It needs to be beyond just cybersecurity, but include artificial intelligence. And a part of that would be to have a strategy on international technical standard setting. Uh, there should be an interagency coordination task force that's led by NIST. There should be proper resourcing and prioritization across the departments and agencies so that those at the DOD, those at the Department of State, those that are actually um, uh, consumers of technical standards are actually able to attend these technical standard setting meetings, contribute in meaningful ways, and, and really ensure that technical standards continue to be uh, the boon for um, for innovation and ensuring that there's interoperability across, you know, the entire world and, and not become tools for promoting the authoritarian use of technology. And then in addition to that, we do make a number of recommendations on uh, stand up, sorry, norms for artificial intelligence. So there's the technical standards, but there's also a great need for international collaboration and for the United States to take a leadership position in promoting norms for the responsible development and use of technology. And here's an, another area where it's absolutely critical to have the private sector to be involved because ultimately the private sector are the actors who and stakeholders that are creating AI-enabled technologies and selling them in different markets and in, in some in sometimes even um, providing them to developing countries to meet a demand and ensure that there's an overcoming of the digital divide. But again, it'll be really critical for the United States government to work with civil society and uh, the private sector to ensure that there's uh, appropriate uses and there's guidelines and that we're really thinking critical to ensure that artificial intelligence strengthens democracy and is, is not used to undermine privacy and civil liberties. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a huge challenge that we face uh, reconciling, uh, understanding how democracy is a strength in this battle and how we can continue to um, to compete uh, and where necessary fight in ways that play to our strengths as a democracy, as opposed to what I, I you sometimes hear, which sounds like kind of autocratic envy of <laughs> uh, uh, some of our uh, um, adversaries. And um, so we've, we've got a question from one of our viewers 
um, uh, kind of about these gray zone activities, son, I'm gonna I'm gonna pose it to you. Uh, it's clear that foreign actors are willing to weaken the democratic process in Western countries using a variety of methods. Uh, and the question is, uh, can the West retaliate using cyberspace, using liberal values or other non-kinetic means? I would say other democracy strength, uh, you know, tools um, to threaten the CPP. And if so, how could the CPP retaliate uh, trying to play chess here? Yeah. Thank you for that fantastic question. Um, so I think I, I want to start by saying something that was said on the panel yesterday too, which is that we want to be careful about not hyping the threat from China. We want to be careful about the language we use here, especially because these are um, areas in which um, we need to look for cooperation as well as um, competition, um, especially if we're talking about global governance and building norms. Um, I think it's important to reach out. Um, and at the same time, I think when we think about the adversary's capabilities, we cannot leave behind questions about intent. What is really driving Russia and China to pursue particular technologies? If we, for example, think about the development of hypersonics, I mean, I think that there is also a question of looking at how some of this is um, an arms race around vulnerabilities, right? Like we started out with missile defense and we've got kind of a response. Um, so I think we want to be careful when we're developing these technologies and, and choosing these strategies um, that we think about the unintended yet and sometimes foreseeable consequences of the way we construct and develop things. And I think we also want to be careful because the threat environment can change in many, many different ways and change quite dramatically. Um, so we don't want to get locked into particular um, developments of technologies. Um, and in general, um, I think the military um, needs to think a lot about interoperability um, of some of these capabilities and um, bringing some of the allies um, into the conversation um, and build broad coalitions around these questions. We've got a couple questions that kind of go to workforce, uh, which we've touched upon, but but um, haven't really uh, done a deep dive. Christy, uh, 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 we've got a question about what the US is doing to prepare for the competition on talent around artificial intelligence and clearly um, you know, all of you can jump in because it applies across the board to emerging technologies. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And actually, uh, it's one of the four pillars that the National Security Commission Artificial Intelligence really focused on, which is that there is a true uh, competition for global AI talent. And the commission makes a number of recommendations that we do think are really integral and necessary to address this shortfall. So first, um, that we need to find and ensure that there are really great career opportunities for the technologists that are already in government. Uh, second, that we need to create new pipelines to ensure that technologists outside of government are involved in government. And so we have a couple of really large um, recommendations there. So one would be for the creation of a national civilian national digital reserve corps, and also for the creation of a US Digital Service Academy, which we think would go a long way of helping address the, uh, the scarcity of AI talent and emerging technology talent across the government. Um, we also recommend that the Biden administration or that the United States government pass the National, Defe uh, National Defense Education Act, which would help address um, the need to train and increase our education for STEM talent, K through 12, provide graduate and undergraduate fellowships, uh, providing reskilling and retraining, and also address some of our immigration uh, visas and practices to ensure that we can attract 
and retain AI talent to the United States. So this is one area that actually there's, there's been an, an, a lot of great efforts that have been coming out of the current administration for increasing our domestic innovation and capabilities. However, there needs to be more that's done to address the scarcity of talent. Do any of our other panelists want to add anything? That's a great, pretty comprehensive strategy. Camille? I'll just add that I think that there are also some creative opportunities that could facilitate advancing some of the other goals we've talked about. Tech exchange or yeah, talent exchanges with tech companies um, would be a great opportunity to not only get talent from the technology sector into government and vice versa, but it would facilitate the trust that we have been talking about underpinning this collaborative relationship that we need. Um, you know, if we look at countries like Israel, part of why there is such a great relationship with their private sector and their academic sector and industry, I mean, in government, is that everyone served in government. There's a, an inherent understanding of what government is trying to do, what the mission space is and, and how people operate. And we don't have that same model and, you know, nor am I saying that we need to, but what I am saying is this is an opportunity for that kind of visibility and understanding that could facilitate trust. As we see more people traverse between the technology sector and government, we're seeing more of that develop, more programs spurring discussion and innovation and conversation about these things, but that kind of mutual understanding around technology um, and how it plans to develop in the private sector, but also national security uh, priorities and capacity building priorities um, could support some of the other things we're talking about. Great, Sana? So I think these are great points. Just to add that trust also works in another way. We should also build trust between the people that are using the systems and the people and the system themselves. And I think this is a question of bringing the users into the conversations about the development of this emerging technology. And in addition to that, given that technology is so is, is a product of our society, I think multidisciplinarity is also key in development of technology. Um, getting the sociologists and the political scientists in on these questions is important um, because they have such big com um, implications for international cooperation and competition. Yeah, great. Jenny, did you want to jump in on this? I would echo pretty much everything that was just said um, with a, with maybe a foot stomp or extra emphasis on the, um, the education at the K through 12 level um, across the country, making sure that we are really reaching out to people who are typically not exposed to computer science, um, not exposed to some of the, the STEM activities that we um, that we have in some of the bigger cities or in other populations um, in order to especially inform our future technologies, emerging technologies like AI, we really need a diversity in perspective and diversity in background um, and just diversity generally. And so I think you really build that pipeline by starting at the at the base level with kindergarten through through a through middle school and on all the way up um, to ensure that more people have access to that kind of technology and skills. Yeah, so I will I will uh, beat this dead horse again about civics education uh, because I, I think it's so relevant, Ginny, to what you've just said. You know, your uh, your boss, Brad Smith, uh, who who uh, I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to chat with um, about these issues, made the point that uh, these as we teach these uh, you know STEM uh, subjects particularly the technology piece, we have to also instill a sense of civic responsibility. And, uh, and so that, that K through 12 uh, focus on STEM needs to be broadened so that we build in civics. Uh, I think uh, that cybersecurity ought to be a use case for every civics teacher 
to talk about civic responsibility, right? What is our what is our responsibility beyond just ourselves? Why we should you know, exercise more care, and certainly as we're educating the next generation of innovators in technology, what is their obligation, right, to society? What you know, do they have a a broader way of thinking about what they're doing and the implications uh, for society. And I think that comes from that basic grounding in, in civic identity and civic responsibility. Sana, did you have, have your hand up from earlier or did you want to add something more here or from earlier? Okay. Um, and it's interesting when you talk about broadening the conversation uh, to include, you know, uh, users, for example, at the table, um, but also developers, right? So we did, we got a question along those lines. You know, um, Abby asks, we encourage tech workers to help educate policymakers, but we also criticize self-regulation at tech companies as insufficient. Uh, how do you navigate this tension and ensure the right stakeholders are shaping tech policies for the U.S. government? Um, and, and then how should tech workers and companies navigate dual-use technologies um, can you develop technology for the U.S. military and ensure it won't be used for lethal purposes? Um, so, you know, two really good questions from Abby. Does anybody want to take a stab at the first one about, you know, how do we, uh, what is the right, and we've touched on this a little bit in terms of how we're organized, what is the right way to bring tech companies into the conversation with policymakers? to both educate policymakers and for policymakers to help educate the tech companies on what our expectations of them are and should be. Well, one thought that I have when I when I heard this is, um, you know, there are some really great opportunities for people who work in tech to have exposure to working in government without it necessarily being a long-term career shift. And I think that's something that is fairly recent. I think we really first saw that starting in the Obama administration with some great work with the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, um, and some other ways. I think there's Tech Congress as well, if people want to go to the Hill and spend a year or two. Um, and I love the idea that this is sort of Peace Corps for the tech. You know, it's your way of giving back, of spending some time, doing some service with the government, and then having the opportunity to go back to your to your company or to, to you know, whatever else you want to do after the fact. Um, the more that people sort of sign up and volunteer, uh, not necessarily volunteer, but choose to spend a couple of years doing that, I think that will have a huge impact on how our government looks at tech when they have people who are coming from the technology industry and are really um, sort of living and breathing the policy piece. But then also, man, when those people, if and when they go back, um, though I know a lot of people who have chosen to stay in government uh, because they love the service once they go, but for those who choose to, to come back, they are then bringing with them um, some really invaluable knowledge about how the policymaking process works, and they're a huge asset to their companies. Um, it's one of the reasons that Microsoft offers civic leave for our employees. Um, so if they want to go do that for a year or two, they can do that and have a spot when they come back because we recognize it is in everybody's best interest for our folks to go and serve and spend a couple a couple years or so working in government. So I know that doesn't maybe get to sort of the question of the tension, but I do think it's one sort of positive development that we've seen over the years that, that could... Um, could really help the two worlds sort of bridge that gap and understand each other better. Yeah, it's it's almost like a joint duty in the military, right? To try to build understanding across the services uh, within the military, to build that understanding between government and private sector. And 
Um, I remember years ago being on the stage at the Aspen Security Forum uh, uh, with the head of Intel at the time, and uh, who was talking about how what a challenge it is to to you know find good cyber talent. And I turned to him. I said, "You think you're having trouble? Imagine if you're just work you know in the government trying to uh, find cyber talent." I said, "You know, private sector always comes to me and says, what are you doing, government, to build the pipeline?'" And I finally turned it around uh, and said, so what are you doing at Intel to build the pipeline? Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. If you share, you know, uh, in, for example, providing a scholarship uh, for students into computer science, I'll take them right out of school for two or three years. I'll give them the on-the-job training and then hand them over to you because, you know, a lot of them are going to go to you anyway <laughs> once they have the skills. Um, and and so they can work for you. You get somebody who's got some training, and I believe a good number of them will come back to me. This is when I was in the government because they missed the mission, um, as you talked about, Jenny, uh, and uh, and we shook on it. And Jim Langevin, uh, congressman from Rhode Island, um, has uh, has been actually been working on these kinds of creative ways to encourage this flow between the private sector and government. Um, one of you also talked about this, the Reserve Corps, which I think is a great idea the, um, and, and can accomplish much of the same kind of objective of, of that mutual understanding that we need in order to mobilize cohesively when needed um, to understand each other's capabilities and imperatives and limitations. Um, my only worry is if we rely on the Reserve Corps for response. Uh, because I think we'll be double counting. These are people who are uh, valued because of their day jobs for private sector companies where they perform important functions. And if we have a wide scale event, they're going to be needed perhaps at their companies and the government is going to think they can call on them. And um, so we just have to be careful not to double count. But um, but otherwise, I think there's a lot, lot to be said about that. Christy, did you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, yeah great. No. I think that um, your point is an excellent one in that it really, and it, it goes back to a point that you made about the report about how it is helping educate policymakers and the public. And truly, I do think that a large part of some of the disconnect can be just a, a asymmetric information. So it's really about how can the government share information to the private sector to help them understand some of the threats, to help understand maybe what the, even the needs are for, for example, the Department of Defense in terms of what sort of capabilities they would like, um, what the commercial gaps may be. And on the other side, for a private sector to help um, provide sort of firsthand experience about what it means to be, for example, at an international technical standards body and, uh, and participate in those meetings. So that's why a lot of our recommendations have been about how can we ensure and how can the United States government reorganize and have the structures and interagency uh, coordination to bring in the private sector for these conversations about technical standards, for domestic innovation, for ensuring that we have the right hardware and semiconductors and chips. And we're looking at responsible use and applications um, so that AI-enabled technologies are not helping other governments surveil and suppress uh, civil dissent in their country. Um, and another part of, of addressing that gap is what the commission has recommended, which is an emerging technology coalition, which would convene nations, like-minded nations and democracies, traditional allies and partners and, and uh, new allies and partners with the civil society, with the private sector to really address 
um, challenges and opportunities uh, proposed by artificial intelligence and emerging technologies, including on regulation, including um, ensuring that the United States regulatory regimes may align with allies and partners regulatory regimes so that we can strengthen international collaboration or strengthen R&D um, and not, not undercut or undermine the sort of collaboration that's really needed to advance democratic uses of artificial intelligence and emerging technologies. And some of those conversations may be about where we are going to uh, count on our partner or ally country to take the lead in something. Um, and we will not, you know, we will we will pursue some complementary, uh, you know, avenue. Maybe it's the, the applications of that technology that, you know, um, and so it really is kind of a give and take and a recognition of relative strengths and competitive advantages um, that we're talking about there. Sana, did you want to jump in on this? Um, sure. So I think this is a fascinating conversation. So I think I, I think we also should note that we don't want to develop um, everything, right? There should be limits, and those limits are not only on the basis of ethical concerns, like we see in the debates around lethal autonomous weapons, even though I should note that um, we, when we do these kinds of conversations, we want to focus on the sets of technologies that are already here, rather than just like looking in the future, you want to also capture what already exists. Um, as well as utilize some of the um, organizations and networks and um, platforms and legal frameworks that already exist. Like I think about the Geneva Conventions and that kind of stuff. Um, but I also think we want to be careful about limitless, limitless technology from a strategic point of view. Because if we think um, about something that I study uh, in depth, which is missile defense, I think the, the idea that there is um, that there appears to be no real limits on the amount of development we do in missile defense can be incredibly upsetting um, for adversaries and leads to an arms race dynamic. So I think we want to be really, really careful and, and find ways to clearly signal uh, limits in technological development as well. Great. So some might see that as a somewhat provocative statement that, we, that there are th things we should not pursue. Does anybody want to challenge that statement or? I guess I'll take the bait. I do think that there are things that the United States and, you know, the commission recommends that there are certain things that the United States should not pursue. However, I think that we need to be clear eyed about the fact that our competitors may be pursuing things that we would wish they would not pursue. And we need to understand that if we want to shape the norms or the use around how some of these uh, technologies are applied, um, sometimes that means that we will maybe have to pursue and be involved with things out of necessity. Um, otherwise, we'll be uh, sort of letting our competitors shape the global landscape in a way that uh, undermines democratic societies in a free and, and open uh, international order. Really important point, Christy. Thank you. And and Sana uh, emphasis, has emphasized a couple times now that we you know we can't be so focused, although this panel is focused on emerging technologies, but that, you know, sometimes uh, what uh, what a lot of policymakers think is an emerging technology is something that's actually been around for quite some time. Uh, and so I think you and Ginny and others have made this point as well, and that we, it's really important that we uh, not lose sight of what is right in front of us, both in terms of the technologies and the policies and laws that we have in place and how those would apply before we immediately start reaching for something new. So we've got a couple questions about kind of existing 
uh, technologies, but that you know will uh, uh, that that can be implicated uh, affected by emerging technologies to become more complex. And one of those is disinformation. So we've got uh, John from NATO Strategic Communications Center of Excellence who's asking. What are the knowledge gaps and what we know about dis and misinformation and what needs to be studied more to provide policymakers with better recommendations? And Jenny, maybe this is something that's right up your alley. Sure. Um, I can definitely start to address the gaps. Um, the solutions part, the recommendations is um, no question more challenging. Um, one of the things that I think about as one of the biggest challenges when you're talking about dis and misinformation is essentially the um, asymmetric challenge involved. Es essentially, you're talking about um, predicting when and where disinformation is going to achieve virality um, when most of the time the countermeasures that you see are reactive, right? The, the things that people have put in place to respond to disinformation is in fact responding to it versus um, in many cases being able to catch it on the front end or stop it before it occurs. So we think a lot about those issues and about how we can sort of balance out that asymmetric threat um, of disinformation campaigns. Um, and then of course, there's just the ongoing challenge of defining disinformation to begin with, um, who is the arbiter of truth, who gets to define, define what, um, and then how do you apply it? And are we talking about applications from the platforms? Are we talking about applications through regulation, which I get is sort of what the question is getting at. So as I said, I'm I'm, I'm all full of, of problems and questions. Um, the recommendations and solutions part is something that a lot of people are grappling with and, and struggling. Um, I'll say one area that we've sort of been focusing in on is, is around um, not disinformation as a general topic, but more specifically around like synthetic media and, and deep fakes and essentially what can be done to help identify the truth, the reality. Um, this is a problem that has not yet actually become a huge issue in political um, uh, issues yet, but it is absolutely an issue for a lot of very vulnerable people, particularly women um, around pornography. So we see deep fakes as being something that will um, continue to emerge and be problematic. So a lot of investigation right now into origin of, of media and um, essentially how can you create uh, something that can be watermarked for, that's not the appropriate term, but just to give you a sense of what, what people are investigating right now, how can you essentially watermark a video um, so that you know where it originally came from, you know that the origin is authentic. Um, so there are some solutions out there. I guess I'm trying to put some silver lining on this. There are people who are working really hard to identify um, solutions in this space, but it is certainly one that is, is full of more questions at this point than answers. Yeah, it is a challenge. And, you know, one of the things with regard to the deep fakes, um, you know, the solution sets that you're talking about that folks are working on, the more you can do it in real time, as opposed to after the fact debunking something, my biggest is, is going to be really important. My biggest worry about deep fakes is less that people will be convinced of the truth of the deep fake than that they will stop believing in or trusting anything that they see because they don't know whether it's uh, fake or real anymore. And that, again, moves us toward that post-truth world. Uh, and disinformation is really often designed to do just that. Uh, and, you, you know, Ginny, you talk about getting out in front of not just being reactive to disinformation and misinformation, I will just this and I maybe this will be the last time I'll mention civics education, maybe not. 
Um, but I, but again, I think it is an important way to build public resilience against disinformation, which is designed to get people to disengage, to give up, to think they can't, you know, that democracy is not worth staying engaged in because the system is so irrevocably broken. If we can teach people, empower people to be effective agents of change, to hold government accountable, we can uh, build public resilience against the content of disinformation instead of just the technique of disinformation. Camille, did you have your hand up for this? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's really important to um, to to focus on the root causes that we're trying to solve too. And in the disinformation problem, I think a lot of what we see is flurry around the manifestation of the moment and the technology of the moment. Um, and Jenny brings up really good examples of how we can combat this, but what we really need are some cultural shifts. Um, some spurred by the civics education that you were talking about, but also um, if we shift how we think about what truthfulness looks like and what we as uh, industry do to spur that truth, we can leverage the collaboration we've been talking about in industry standards bodies, in industry groups in general, to spur a uniform response that says, okay, well, the standard will be that our cell phones and other camera devices will inherently stamp things that are true, right? And then we can mitigate for pictures of pictures and you know fake manipulated audio in a way that supports that civics education that taught you to be you know, politely paranoid, but understand how to find your truth for yourself, right? And so there are some opportunities through the collaboration we talked about to facilitate addressing root causes and spurring cultural change that can support some of the technical solutions that we are exploring as industry and government. The other thing I wanted to uh, add to the conversation earlier about the tension is we have to identify that tension. We have to talk about that tension because ignoring the tension between the demands that we're making on industry will make trust a harder proposition. Um, if we don't facilitate collaboration and cooperation that is rooted in acknowledging the hard problems we're seeking to solve, we won't make any progress. So I just wanted to throw that out there too. Yeah, yep, great. I love the um, politely paranoid, Camille. Uh, I, one of my favorite lines from a movie a long, long time ago is, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean everybody isn't out to get you. Um, uh, I think paranoia is an occupational hazard for all of us in national security. But I also really appreciated your discussion of technology as part of the solution set, right? Because we tend to focus a lot on te uh, technology as a challenge, but, uh, but but clearly can help us in some interesting ways. And we have a question along those lines, which I thought was interesting. Um, I, I, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing the name, uh, Sneha from Johns Hopkins, SAIS uh, asks, what potential and how do you see the future of technology shaping language acquisition and language learning? Ginny, is that anything Microsoft is looking at? Probably, <laughs> but not me. <laughs> I think Christy came off mute. I think she might have some thoughts on it. Excellent. I, I don't think I, I don't have a, a lot of thoughts on it, but I will just say that's a, uh, the commission I did identify uh, a number of places where we think that AI will truly revolutionize and benefit humanity. Um, it's really innumerable, but one of them is on uh, lifelong learning and personalized education. And I think that uh, language ac acquisition and language learning is, is an area where uh, 
artificial intelligence can really help push the forefront. Um, and we're really positive about the, the ability for the United States and also in collaboration with allies and partners to work on pushing that forward um, to address maybe some of even the AI talent and emerging technology talent gaps by uh, through personalized learning. Yeah, that quite answers it. Yeah, that's great, Christy. Um, I think there is some real value in learning other languages beyond just the ability to speak and understand other languages. I think there is some some value in re, kind of rewiring your brain. There's some cultural um, understanding that comes with really learning a new language. That having been said, I will say one of the things I am most excited about the potential from technology is those, you know, those things, those little buds you'd put in your ears and suddenly you can uh, understand whatever anybody's saying to you in whatever language and, you know, whatever technology might allow me then to respond and have that conversation in their language without having to learn all those languages. Um, <laughs> We have a question from uh, Luis, also at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Laboratory, who asks, uh, why should a 22-year-old freshly minted graduate work for the government uh, when that graduate can make $200,000 a year working for a private security group? Um, so uh, Luis is pointing out the pay challenge, um, but uh, Jenny and Camille, particularly, you guys have spoken to and seen firsthand that the government can, in fact, compete for talent. And why is that? Yeah, I mean, the government is the only place you can look at these issues um, from that lens. I mean, the opportunity to look at offensive capabilities as compared to defensive and to understand the full breadth of the federal apparatus and how that mobilizes around a cyber incident um, and how you know, the federal government is thinking about local issues versus national issues and international issues and how all those converge is not compared to how you're looking at these things in industry. Don't get me wrong. Industry is definitely a part of national security and foreign policy discussions and how we are moving today, right? But it is a different lens, different capabilities, different opportunities. And so that 22-year-old, I would challenge them while they are still able to live with roommates and, you know, think about life a little differently, be a little more scrappy about their finances, that getting a basis in the government where you are tackling these issues through this national security lens um, and understanding the federal apparatus and the world around you is a great toolkit to bring with you to the private sector, should you choose to do that, or to move seamlessly between the two. And we need more people who do that. So there's a value proposition. There's a real tie to mission and a, a look at these issues in a way that you, is unmatched in the industry. I'll just add, when I talk to um, college students who are trying to figure out what they do next, um, it, sometimes government is a strategic move too. Um, you know, I it would depend on the individual. And there might be cases where I would look at someone's profile and what they wanted to do long-term. And I'd say, yeah, student government's not really all that helpful for you. You should you know, go this path. But a lot of times, depending on what they think they wanna do, what their skill set is, I wouldn't say that the pay differential for those first couple of years tends to be great enough um, when they, if they're thinking long-term. And that's why mentorship is really important for a lot of these students, having people they can talk to who will help them see what might be around the corner because it's really hard not to see past that first paycheck especially if you've been on you know student aid and you're like looking forward to finally making money and you're turning down this great opportunity 
But if you have someone who's sort of in your corner and talking to you and able to advocate for you and say, look, you actually have the potential to make far more if you just give yourself a few years in government, the skill set you'll develop there on top of your technical skill set will translate to a much bigger, better deal for you in the long run. Um, so it's, I think it's sort of a combination of things. It really doesn't depend on the individual, but I think there are, there's compelling cases to be made for even for self-interest in that case. Well, uh, Sana and Christy, you both are much closer to this. Uh, so what is your thinking as, as uh, about to be a new uh, postgraduate? So I think um, I'd like to make a, a pin for the academic world in this conversation as well. I think there's work to be done uh, in academia in, for example, thinking about misinformation and this kind of stuff. Um, and I think it's important that that academia um, interacts more with the outside world and with what everyone else is doing. And I think policy relevant research is definitely um, some an important discussion that's ongoing, but need to be expanded within the academic realm um, in order to solve these um, extremely complex um, technological development questions. Um, so that's kind of my pin. Um, yeah. Great. So, so it's not just between the private sector, business and government. You're making the pitch for academia. Christy. I mean, I think that Camille and Ginny and Sana all just hit it on the nose that it really is about sort of the mission and what you're able to do when, when you're in government and uh, the ability to see really the full picture uh, is just unparalleled. Um, so nothing more I could really add that they, that they haven't already uh, really explained very well. Yeah, well, I would certainly foot stomp that. Uh, as I said, I... I've just seen so many times when people spend some time in government, uh, left to make some money to put their kids through college, but as soon as they could, uh, were anxious to get back in because that sense of mission is really very hard to replicate anywhere else. I mean, I, uh, you know, Ginny and Camille both have alluded to the very public service kinds of activities that they've been able to engage in in their private sector positions. Um, particularly around elections and disinformation and those kinds of things. But it is, as Christy says, that comprehensive view in uh, that, you know, kind of really strong sense of this really being all about the mission uh, and a part of something that's larger than yourself, right, is really the joy of working for government. So I hope all of you soon to be graduates out there who are watching this will uh, think hard about going into government and particularly DHS. I'm going to put in a plug for CISA um, as the moderator's prerogative. Uh, so we have we have come to the end of our time, uh, but it was a great conversation. Really just thoroughly enjoyed talking with all four of you. And I want to thank you. I know you're all very busy for taking time to be with us. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.